All right. Well, welcome, everybody. It's nice to have you with us. We are looking tonight at the next little bit of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to invite you to turn there. Um, warm welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Maxwell. Pardon me introducing you to everybody, but we're a, a small and friendly group here. I'm not too intimidating, I trust. Is this your first time at Wednesday Night Bible Study? Yeah. And you've been visiting us on Sundays, and yeah. maybe folks here have got to know you. Um, well, I hope you enjoy yourself as well. We've been working our way through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We've got as far as chapter 5. Today, in a, a fit of uh, unseemly ambition, I'm going to try and get all the way through the whole of the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, which is, <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous, but, but you never know. It might be possible. Beg your pardon? There is a time for everything. Maybe there's a time to preach on more verses. Uh, I did tell you about the time I once preached on half a verse, didn't I? That was a long time ago. But it was a good day. So, All right. Uh, we're going to read then from Ecclesiastes 5.8 to the end of chapter 6. You'll readily see what this is about. Then we'll pray and um, we'll just jump straight into it. So Ecclesiastes 5 from verse 8. If you see in a province... The oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the false stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and in sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink And find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun And it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honour, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, 
yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you once again for your word, the Bible, and for its uh, brutal realism and harsh, sharp edges. And we pray that today you would teach us by exposing us to some more of those sharp edges about the realities of the life that you've laid before us. We thank you for Solomon and for the, the hard lessons he learned, often through foolish mistakes, but at times through the God-given wisdom that he received from you. And we pray now, as we consider the subjects before us this evening, you would send us away from here chastened and sobered and wiser and resolved to do a better job of living wisely, embodying skill at life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okie dokie. So, brief reminder what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. You know this by now, but the book of Ecclesiastes announces its overall message in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, or the Hebrew word is hevel. Vanity is a reasonably good translation of one aspect of its uh, meaning. But the word means what? Mist. Very good. Mist or breath or wind or something of that sort. And so it conjures an image of something ephemeral, something not lasting, something that may be beautiful and wonderful while it lasts, but something that you can't grab a hold of. You can't go and put the mist in a bottle and then take it home and store it up. It's kind of gone. Uh, And so uh, at the centre of the book is uh, a reminder of the um, account of the entrance into the world of the one thing that does bring an end to it all for us, the entrance of death into the world, the, uh, the one time in the middle of the book where the author mentions his name again. Remember, three times at the beginning, three times at the end, and one time in the middle, the preacher, Kohelet, the one who gathers the assembly, speaks of the, well, speaks obliquely of the fall of Genesis 3, the catastrophe by which death entered the world. And death is the thing that puts this miserable end under the sun, a phrase he keeps using, to our experience of life. And so life is this wonderful gift, but it's a hevel gift. It's a misty gift. It's a gift you can't keep a hold of. You can't grasp the mist. And so throughout the book, Solomon Kohelet, the preacher, observes different aspects of the world around him and is trying to show us how this is 
Hevel, how that's Hevel, how this is like mist and how that's like mist. And we've looked at various different things. You can see um, back in chapter 2, the vanity, the Hevel-likeness of self-indulgence and of even pursuing wisdom and of hard work. And yet it is a good thing to work hard and it is a good thing to enjoy life's good things and so on and so forth. So it's this tangled, complex, frustrating book because it's a very, very vivid picture of the realities of this tangled, complex, frustrating life that we are given this wonderful gift. And today, we turn to the subject of money or wealth. Can you see that? And you saw that popping up throughout the uh, reading. It's quite a long reading. Uh, For reasons that I will show you in a couple of minutes, I think it is best to consider the whole thing in one go because there's a structural unity to it, which I'll highlight for you in a second. But before we um, jump in and talk about money, I need to correct um, some terrible misorientations on the subject of money among Bible-believing Christians in modern America and actually throughout the modern West. We, We have been for so long so wealthy that we, I think, have come to take the good things of wealth for granted and as a Christian culture have started to focus almost exclusively on the dangers of wealth. Now, if you think about it for a moment, if, if I were to say I'm going to preach a, a sermon on the subject of wealth, I'm not preaching a sermon, I want to interact, Bible study, but if you didn't know we were talking about Ecclesiastes and I was going to talk about wealth, what are you expecting to hear? The dangers of covetousness, the rich man who won't enter the kingdom, and so on and so forth. There are many biblical warnings against the dangers of wealth and greed and so on and so forth. And it's the poor of the land whom God, well, they're the only ones left in the land to whom God shows favour by the time that he sent the rich, oppressive rulers and leaders of the people out of the land during the exile in the days of in the Babylonian exile under the old covenant. So we've got, if I talk about wealth, you're expecting to hear me being down on wealth. And Ecclesiastes has some negative things to say about wealth. But we need to reset the context slightly by recognizing first the fundamental goodness of wealth. Here's the thing. If wealth were a kind of an evil through and through, so that the only things we were supposed to think about it are that, they, that it's bad, it, it wouldn't really make sense for Solomon to spend all this time highlighting the dangers of it. Because if it was so bad and terrible that we'd be running a million miles from it, it, would, it it's not the kind of thing that would constitute a temptation that we'd need to be warned against. And I want to highlight another couple of thoughts. Just practically speaking, uh, I think we've forgotten that money really matters. Uh, it actually matters for Christians. Uh, I, I was telling the Bible and theology students earlier this week, I told them a story about a... Um, an economist. No, I'll tell you that story in a second. I, I, the, the, I want to tell you first, try and get my thoughts in order. The, the, the reason why wealth matters can most easily be appreciated by just thinking your way back into Old Covenant Israel. Gentlemen, you have your little patch of land up there in the inheritance of Naphtali or um, 
down there in the inheritance of Judah. What are you supposed to do with your land? Yeah, cultivate it. You're supposed to bring forth the fruitfulness of the land. And what would a really, really godly, faithful young man do in his teenage years? With that aim in mind, what would he do? Go on. Well, I've got a number of ideas. If he was to receive that land, he'd save up for it, not only to buy the land, but to have the necessary equipment to cultivate it and have something to share from it. Right, good. With the people around. So he'd be saving and uh, investing and getting ready to purchase what he needed to work it. What else? Uh, Any of you know how to farm land? Anybody? I mean, I have zero idea, like, like zero clue. How do you think he's supposed to learn? How, how, is he, how is he supposed to learn what he needs to know to farm the land well? Yeah, learning from his parents, right? And, and what kind of a priority would that be? Right. Well, what's going to happen if you've got a guy who grows up and is unable to farm the land? Well, he's going to starve. Is he going to be able to marry and raise a family? Right? You can see, we, in the actual real life of the world of the scriptures to which the word of God is delivered, the, the need to raise money or to acquire sufficient wealth to provide for your family is actually intimately bound up with fulfilling the whole purpose of Israel's life in the land, which is to experience God's mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him and welcome all the nations to worship Yahweh at Mount Zion. Israel has this vocation in the land, which involves passing on the blessing of the land, farming it fruitfully, making sufficient wealth to provide for the growing population and the population of sojourners and aliens and others who pass through so that they can experience the blessing of God as well. And it just would be completely incomprehensible to them if you were to say, well, you know, I don't really care about money. I just want to love the Lord and money doesn't really matter to me. They'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? How, how are your children going to eat? And I think the situation we find ourselves in, as I said a moment ago, we're, we're living several generations downwind of such a spectacularly dramatic improvement in wealth across our society that we it never occurs to us that if we don't work we won't eat so if you think about it in more concrete new covenant uh, perspective what what is the church for is it is it not the case that we are here to display to the world the goodness and kindness of the living God, to welcome any who repent to the Lord Jesus Christ, to pass on to the next generation and the generation after that and to a thousand generations, the blessings of fellowship with God that God promises to the children of his people. And gentlemen, just as the first Israelites to read Ecclesiastes would not have been able to do that if they couldn't work the fields and acquire grain or barley or milk and meat from their livestock. So also, you can't do that if you can't earn enough money to provide for your family. 
You cannot. Ladies, you're in a slightly different, though not entirely different, position. It's very likely that even if you were to get married, and most of you statistically will, and I pray that you will, it's likely that even if you do spend a considerable amount of time during your life raising children and caring for them, you're not going to be able to have children forever. Sorry to break the bad news to you. At some point, they're going to get up and leave home. And, and really, it's lovely to have grandparents um, around, uh, but the job of full-time grandparent is not what we need. There'll be plenty of time for you to work to provide for yourselves and others as well. And so I don't want us in reading this simply to read it through the lenses of people who are so used to always having food on the table and money in the bank that we forget that actually earning money or providing agriculturally, if you like the late Bronze Age equivalent, is a, it's a moral obligation to provide for your family. Paul presupposes it, 1 Timothy 6. If anyone doesn't provide for his own uh, relatives, especially those of his household, he's denied the faith. And he's worse than an unbeliever. It's astonishing, isn't it? So I do want us to keep in mind all the dangers of money which we're going to come to But let's keep it in mind from a perspective of recognising that we mustn't hyper-pietise our callings. And especially you younger people who are still at school, this is the story I was going to tell you. I was listening to a discussion between two economists, uh, Russ Roberts and Roland Fryer. Roland Fryer conducted some experiments a few years ago where they paid school students to learn. And this is a story I told to these um, the Bible and theology class students. Um, what he did was they would pay substantial sums of money, up, you know, hundreds of dollars a year if you did all the work well, to high school students. So, for example, you might get $20 to do a week's homework in maths or you get $50 to read a book and write an essay on it or something like that. Okay? And what they did was they tracked the... Uh, educational outcomes, the improvements in educational outcomes of these um, young people, and they were substantial. You got a couple of standard deviations of improvement in educational outcomes by spending a lot less directly giving to the students than you'd have to spend on teachers to get the same kind of marginal improvement. And so it's kind of interesting to see. And so I was asking the students, okay, so what would I have to pay you for you to always, always do the very, very best you can on all of my theology homework assignments and all of your other homework assignments. And they're like, they're looking at me like with eyes wide. I said, if I paid you $50 a week, and I've got these uh, uh, student feedback forms which are quite detailed, and there's five columns, and on the left-hand side it's excellent, then it's good, acceptable, substandard, and fail. And the, the, the excellent column and there's about 20 rows, okay? So I get basically, with my versions of these, I circle how the students are doing, then I give them a grade broken down in these different categories. I said, if you just look down the left-hand side, how much would I have to pay you to get, for you to strive with everything in you to get that left-hand column? $50 a week, would that do it? And they're all like, yeah. That's like $1,500 a year. And I said, I'll round it up $2,000 a year. Would you do it? Of course, then I pointed out, 
What improvement in salary do you think you could expect to get if you went from where you are now to outstanding? A couple of percent a year? Five percent a year? You could, if you could get thousands of dollars a year extra for the whole of your life if you just moved from pretty good to excellent. You should be paying me. I shouldn't be paying you. I, said, I told them where to send the check, and I'm looking forward to receiving them. <laughs> but you see the point. See, what's happened is we have detached education and even work from the actual necessity of fulfilling a moral obligation to provide financially for our families. That would have been obvious to Solomon. And that's the framework within which we should approach this text. We, we shouldn't approach it already suspicious of money and really expecting excuses to push us in the hyperpietistic direction so we only ever hear the, the warnings of wealth's dangers. There are great dangers to wealth, but we must hear them from the perspective of realising the reason it's a problem is because we actually need this stuff. You actually do need to work out how to make a living. And if you're earning $20,000 a year, you probably can't raise a family. And if you're earning eighty, you probably can. So what are you going to do? And so I was laying into these students, first day of the second quarter of the year, and just trying to you know, get, the, get the wheels spinning again. And I think I succeeded. They did really well. At least these two students did. So. All right, so let me just pause there, because we've not got into Ecclesiastes yet. And I, but I wanted to kind of set our perspective in a direction that I think is more akin to where Solomon's coming from. Any comments or questions on this so far? All happy? All right. So let me show you what's going on here then. Because in Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 6, 12, you do have outlined a couple of significant dangers or problems that arise in connection with money. I said earlier that I think that there is a, a unity to this section. And let me show you why. If you look at chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied. Not satisfied. Then look down at chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So both those sections... 5, 10 to 12, and 6, 7 to the end, have this theme of not satisfied about them. So you know what's coming, don't you? If the beginning and the end match, then we take one step further in, and you notice verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13, what, what does chapter 5, verse 13 tell us that there is? There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. And then you roll down, roll down, roll down, chapter 6, verse 1. What is it? There is an evil which I've seen under the sun. Can you see it? There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. So, beginning, not satisfied. End, not satisfied. Next layer in, grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Grievous evil that I've not seen under the sun. And at the centre, chapter 5, verse 18 to 20 is like a summary that gathers together both of the two strands I want to 
explore with you this evening. The summary, let me just read it again, because this is one of, one of those wonderful moments of clarity that you do get in the book of Ecclesiastes in amidst all the confusion. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, come back to that in a second, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God, for he will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, you might summarize that. How would you summarize that? It's a, in spite of life's hevel, mistiness, it's a great and wonderful thing if you're able to eat and drink and find joy in your toil and in all the blessings that God has given you all the days of your life. This is a gift of God. It's a wonderful thing. But either side of it, you have two dangers. And the two dangers is what I think would be helpful for, for us to spend most of our time thinking about. First, the not satisfied bit. Having wealth isn't the same as or doesn't guarantee satisfaction or contentment. And that's highlighted in chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Uh, it's highlighted... Uh, in chapter 6, verse 7 and following, and it pops up elsewhere as well in the earlier bit of chapter 6. And then the second theme that is interwoven in here is, well, it's first identified chapter 5, verse 13. What is the grievous evil that he's seen? What's the terrible thing that you saw that happen? Chapter 5, verse 13. Which is kept for their owner to his hurt. Mm-hmm. At least that's how it's portrayed. In yeah, very good. So, so riches kept by their owner to his hurt, so in a way that damaged him. And how was the damage done? Verse 14. What happened to those riches? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Lost. So you've got these two themes. First, you've got this problem of if you have lots of wealth, well, Having wealth and being satisfied with wealth are not the same thing. And you notice this recurring theme. There's the, the power to enjoy them. I mentioned that, didn't I? Chapter 5, verse 19. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Because you can have wealth and possessions and not have power to enjoy them. Not have the ability to enjoy them. So we've got to try and figure out what would it, what would it be that would stop you enjoying what you have, however much it is, much or little. Because just having the wealth doesn't guarantee satisfaction with them. That's the first theme. Second, you could lose it all anyway. Uh, The temporiness of wealth, which is kind of mirrored by the temporiness of life as well. And you get that certainly in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. You've got the the man who is compared to a stillborn child, which is a horrible vision to be. But we, we should think about that again. So can you see the two things we've got? Having it but not being satisfied, not being content, not being able to enjoy what God has given you. And having it but losing it. And we must see this n- not in the the... the naive and complacent 20th century perspective, 21st century perspective of, oh, well, I don't need money because as long as I have Jesus, right? That's not good enough. We do need it. 
And so we have to wrestle with these realities about it. So I'm going to suggest let's, we'll walk through this passage and try and figure out what's gone wrong in each of these different cameos, each of these different sections, and you can tell me what you think. So there's a bit at the beginning, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, which I sort of skipped over. I'm not really sure what this is doing here, but I think we can probably figure it out. I have a couple of clues. What, what's, um, what's upsetting Solomon in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5? Have a look for me and tell me what you think. What is, what's upset him or frustrated him? What does he think that's wrong? The oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness. Very good. So oppression of the poor... Violation of justice and righteousness. And he says, don't be surprised. Now, why, why would he say don't be surprised? Why, why would it not be surprising that the poor would be oppressed? Because there's nothing new under the sun. But, go on. Human nature to do what Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Somebody else help you out. It's okay. You, poor people, people with fewer resources. Right. I think it might be. It might be that um, that the. The high official is watched by higher and there are yet higher ones over them. I think um, what's in view is probably corrupt officials. You know? So, well, listen, I got ripped off. First home I rented, I got ripped off. So now I'm in a position to rent a home to somebody else. I don't see any reason why I shouldn't. Can you see what I'm saying? So you, you have this, the, the structure of, of power in, in hierarchies when it's corrupted tends to perpetuate itself because people learn how to behave in that kind of... So, so look, let's just be honest. Like, what's the best... Not knowing what the best. What is one way to protect yourself from those circumstances? Yeah, not be poor. Like, sorry to be so unspiritual about it, but it's like, guys... Look, think. The world is hevel, yes? And the hevel... The mist includes what we saw in chapter 3, verse 16. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Now, obviously we know no amount of cash can safeguard your soul. That's not what we're talking about. But if you wanted to protect your wife, your children those whom you love, from the cold, harsh realities of actual wicked people who will drive into your car and then drive off and not stop, leaving you with a huge bill for a, a new vehicle or you claim on the insurance and you're paying elevated insurance premiums for the next 10 years, plus whatever medical expenses you've got. If you want to protect your family, like one way to do it is just to have more money. 
Why are we embarrassed to say this? Does this feel feel slightly unspiritual? Go on, Samuel. It feels, you know, the whole thing about um, money being the root of all evil, you know, at first it feels like it's something that everyone should lighten up to, but nowadays it feels somewhat forced. Yeah, the money is the root of all evil. Just um, fill in the, the three words that come before that quotation that, Samuel, sorry? Yes, thank you. The love of money. Exactly. Yeah. And it actually says the love of money is a root of every kind of evil. Mm-hmm. And so, again, this is one way in which I think we have been uh, pietified and naivified by our wealth, bizarrely. We've never, probably, never been in a position where we've, maybe some of us have, but most of us have never frequently been in a position where uh, we might not eat next week you know and it's interesting I, I think this is probably the connection between verses 8 and 9 and what follows because the poor being oppressed is a it's like a terrible thing. We had, we had somebody knocking on the door of the church. Most weeks, somebody knocks on the door of the church asking for money. Somebody phoned Mrs. Loki and bent her ear for about an hour asking for money. And um, It's heartbreaking because you really, really want to be able to help people. But I said to the lady, I actually called the lady back who called Mrs. Loki, and I, I said, listen, we, don't, we have a policy that we don't give money to people who just call asking for money. It's not that we don't care and wouldn't like to help, but we could empty all of our bank accounts and the church bank account into the coffers of people who are in need in Fort Worth, and we would not make a scratch on the problem. Um, We would like to help. If you want to come and meet with us, I said, I'm very happy to meet with you and try and talk to you about how we could help you, but I guarantee that we can't actually solve this problem. Um, Because it turns out that Poverty is really hard to deal with. So it's interesting. Verse 9 this then says something quite striking. And there's a translation. Um, it's, it's just a really hard Hebrew phrase to translate, especially at the end. But I'm pretty sure the ESV has got it right. I was wrestling with this this afternoon. This is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. Now, here's a challenge. You've got to figure out what's the connection between verse 9 and verse 8. So think, a king who's committed to cultivated fields, that would be good because that might solve the oppression of the poor problem. So somebody help me out here. How's that work? Anne went <gasps> like this, which means that she's had an idea, but I'll let her wait. If, if the king is right. Exactly, exactly. A king who says, listen, we've got to make sure that all the fields are cultivated. Like we, we, I don't want to get political. Actually, yes, I do. Um, um, we don't want to pay people not to work, right? That would be really stupid. Um, what would be really good is to put incentives in place that encourage people to work as hard as they can. Now, clearly, if people are ill, infirm, elderly, somebody needs to look after them, First Timothy 6. But... 
what would be great to have would be a king who really wanted to see everybody you could work working and every square inch of all that gorgeous dark deep soil up in Naphtali covered with barley and whatever else it can grow. Yeah? Um, Aaron? Uh, land promises to them. Um, I'm pretty sure that in Leviticus and Numbers, part of the law of God gives, uh, tells us that landowners need to give some of the reasons for pickups that they need as well. Yeah, correct. In, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, the gleaning laws. You're not allowed to beat your olive trees twice, go over the uh, other crops more than once. You're not allowed to re- reap the edges of the field. Anything you drop, you've got to leave it there because you've got to give something for the very poorest people like Ruth, the Moabitess in the book of Ruth, and to pick up so that you can t- at least survive if you're willing to work hard. So, yeah, that's exactly right. There was a kind of welfare program built into Israel's Torah which ensured that people who were willing to work would be able to eat. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's a difficult um, phrase to translate. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Prophet, literally, it's um, prophet for the land according to all or according to everything. And I think the problem, the, the King James, not without good, some reason, has taken the all to the col, it's literally, um, to mean all rather than in every way. And I think probably the preposition before it means that it, it, it means something like in every way rather than um, there's lots of different ways that the word on its own could be translated. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a tricky one. And I'm pretty sure the King James got it wrong though. Sorry. There are times when the King James gets it right, but this isn't, this isn't one of them. So, so, so then it won't because with that, Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in which case, when you till the earth, even kings will do the same. Right. Exactly. And this is one of the things that makes it hard to figure out which translation is writ which, because all these things are true, like theologically. Um, they don't all fit so well with the context, which is one reason to opt for a translation more along these lines, because you're looking for a rationale as to that, that relates to dealing with the oppression of the poor. And, but yeah, you're right. It's, it, says, it says something like, this is gain, or, and that, that is pretty established. That, the first word in the text, the verb means that. For a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The real problem, okay, I'll, I'll give you one more comment on the Hebrew, and then we're moving on, right? But the, the, the committed... Uh, is a, a passive form of the verb to work. So to be worked. And it's just hard to figure out what that's doing there. It seems like a kind of idiomatic usage, which doesn't seem obvious to us. We're going to move on. I can't remember the Hebrew well enough. All right. Um, but can you see the point? It's cer- okay, we can certainly say this. It's certainly true that... 
wouldn't it be wonderful if those people who are oppressed, in part because they're poor, were able to work their way across a generation or two into a position where they're able to provide for themselves? Because the simple fact is, poor people are highly vulnerable to wickedness. And in a world scarred by the sin of Adam, you're not going to get rid of the wickedness. So what do you do? Okay, get yourself a job and work hard at it for 50 years. That's what you do. You can see? Um, so <laughs> that was the easy bit. Okay. Um, now, verse 10, we've got this picture in our mind now, okay, where we're saying, right, money is not a bad thing. Actually, it's a necessary thing. It's a good thing, particularly because verse 8 and 9 we don't want to end up in the plight of the oppressed poor. You want to be able to protect and care for your family, your children, and so on and so forth. But, verse 10, he who loves money, because remember Samuel, it's not money, it's the, love of money. thank you, love of money. He who loves money, what's the problem here? Read verses 10 and 11 and tell me what the problem is. I'll read it to you, and then you can tell me. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is Hevel. Remember, this is, we're going through a list of Hevel things. This is really Hevel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? What's the problem that's highlighted in this little scene? Yeah, Uriah. Right. Yeah. The more you make, the more you spend. Poor old, what's his name? A Facebook guy, Mark. He's lost like 75 billion in stock this year, poor guy. Should have diversified probably, shouldn't he? But anyway, um, how can he cope? I'm sure he's probably fine. But the, the real issue is exactly what you're saying, isn't it? It's um, when... Income increases, our spending capacity increases, and our spending desires increase. And if you, you can always just be living a little bit above your means. You notice that? Do you remember when we were, illustration, I'll tell you a story, when we were looking for somewhere to live in Fort Worth, we noticed something absolutely fascinating about our own hearts. Um, so what happens is you go to a realtor, and we had a wonderful re- realtor, Jennifer, who was recommended to us by some people in the church. She's fabulous. And there are other great realtors, actually, in the church. It seems that everybody works in real estate in Fort Worth, as far as I can make out. Anyway, and she, and she said, well, you know, what, what's your budget? And you sort of say, well, we, you know, we could afford, you know, pushing ourselves, we could get to here, but we're really looking in sort of this range. Yeah? And you give a range of about 20%. Now, what, what do you do? Well, you look in that range and you look at some and they're right at the bottom end and you're like, well, that's nice. And then you look at some others and you're like, yeah, if you pay a bit more, you do get a bit more, don't you? And you can quite easily see the extra you're getting for the extra 10 or 15 or 20%. And then she'll say, well, I'll just go and take you to see this one, which is just a little bit over the budget. And it's like, ooh. If, mm, that, oh yeah, you, you, wouldn't it be nice to be looking in this bracket, right? Now, what's this fascinating? We realised there's nothing um, 
absolute about this price range that we'd set, we could just as easily have picked this price range, in which the ones right at the top end were actually the ones right at the bottom end of the price range that we were looking at. And we would have had exactly the same reaction. And you could keep going up. My daughters were trying to find a house to live in when we were still in England, and so they looked on Zillow, and they set the price minimum at $15 million. And and it's just really fascinating, because you find this place, it's it's got more bathrooms and it's got bedrooms, which I can't understand. Like, why do you need more And then you realise, yeah, of course, because you host like, lots of parties and, and so on and so forth. And lots and lots of people come and they've got stables and a swimming pool and tennis courts and 20 acres. And, and we looked at that, <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Then we looked at another one that was only 7 million. <laughs> and it looked, frankly, a little bit dowdy. It wasn't really... And you could imagine people saying, <laughs> Because there's, this, there's no limit to the capacity of human stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, however much you have, we have this capacity to see somebody who's got more than us and to feel that acquisitiveness. And now remember, we can't, you may not leave here tonight with a kind of hyperpietist, well, money doesn't really matter. Do not. You have to strive to earn to provide for yourselves. Don't come to me saying, oh, I've got no money. Can, you go, can I go to the deacons? No. Go get a job. That would be my answer to you. Yes, especially you, young people, lots of energy, lots of all your future ahead of you. Um, which means you are necessarily confronted with this problem. If you didn't have any money, you wouldn't have the problem of verse 10. Correct? But because we have to actually farm the land, in ancient Naphtali, or get a job selling steel or selling insurance or being a realtor or flying a plane or flying a plane or whichever. Everyone's flying planes now. Um, what, whatever it is you think, you've got to do that. You therefore are faced with this problem. Now, how are you going to avoid this then? Come on, we can't move on past verse 10 and 11 and not fix this spiritual pathology. Uriah, help us out. Yeah, so contentment, that's great. I mean, I think that's, that's the theological term for what lies behind being satisfied with money, isn't it? We talked about contentment on Sunday. It's kind of providential. Yeah, Miss Duke. Uh, this is more kind of that. Yeah. And you look at their account and they're negative 
Wow. You should tell us how much they have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Swagger. That's interesting. Yes, thank you. So, so there's a certain amount of. I mean, what what are the lessons we're learning from that story? Maybe it's that the danger of wanting to present yourself in a certain way. Um, what else? This contentment point, I think, goes deeper, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of the boy from Missouri, Stephanie, who live on our farm. We, on Saturdays, we have work days just on the property just to go out and do work and do fencing and stuff. Um, and they were pretty long and tiring days. Um, but at the end of them, mm. I've never tasted food that was so good or drank water that was so refreshing and slept so well. Yeah. And felt so content, even if it was just knocking down brush or putting up a fence or yes. moving cows from here to here. It was just, and it wasn't necessarily the work we were doing, but it was the hard, the hard part of it, and mm. completing it, yeah, and yeah, finishing it. And I think that's why Dad had us do it. Yeah, he, yeah. He was teaching me this lesson. Because that that verse twelve is just fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> when you said moving cows from here to here, you know they have legs; they can walk. Yeah, yeah just making sure. Um, um, so that's the limit of my knowledge of cow slayers, by the way. Um, sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I love that image. Have you ever had that when you've, you've been to a, like a grill or a barbecue and you just had a bit too much? And, and you sort of like, <laughs> I'm not the only one, right? And you sort of lie down in the evening and you think, oh, I probably better sit up. <laughs> The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. But if you're just complete, there's no sleep like that sleep where you're completely exhausted and you don't have to get up particularly early the next day. You can sort of sleep 11 hours and you're like, and you wait. You're like, like that on vacation. We were on vacation, wonderful time in, in um, a little cottage, call it a cabin, cabin in, in Colorado. So it was at altitude and I think that made us all tired. And I, I slept like 10 hours a night for two weeks. It was great because we're walking and it's just. The kind of tiredness brings that sweet is the sleep of a labourer. So there is, it gets it's difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got to go out and work. And you've got, if somebody said, hey, if, if you're willing to work a little bit more, you've got this pay rise. And especially those of you who are thinking of your own business, well, there's nothing where the return versus the input is more closely related than running your own business. You know, if you do nothing, you'll get precisely nothing. If you work really, really hard, there's a reasonable chance you'll do well. Um, But at the same time, we've got to try and have this perspective that is highlighted here. 
So what's gone wrong with the rich guy then, apart from he's eaten too much? Um, yeah, Fraser. I wonder if there's something here about the social dimension of wealth, mm -hmm. too. Because whether the laborer eats little or much, his sleep is sweet. Yes. But the rich man has a full stomach, he can't sleep. Well, it's also because when goods increase, they, who, they increase to eat them. You have more obligations, more people depend on you. Yes, yes, and, yes. And all you can do is either look at the bank account, and you're, there's no way you can spend that much money in your life. Or you look at uh, everybody else depending on you, and you're anxious. Mm, yes, yes. Either because you might let them down, or because you'll lose faith in their eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The obligations increase. A friend of mine um, back in England was a member of parliament, Christian man, member of parliament. They get quite a decent salary, really good salary, actually, from which they have to pay all their staff. What does it say? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So nobody becomes an MP, Member of Parliament, for the money in England. Yeah, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I think it I think it's just a kind of slightly bitter, ironic picture with the owner sitting watching everybody else consuming his wealth <laughs> and it's an interesting picture because you think well who are those people are they grandchildren well what a grumpy old codger then that he's sort of sitting around getting which is the point isn't it contentment wouldn't it be wonderful to have a lovely family and lots of grandchildren and they all come around to eat and suddenly they're like <laughs> eating you out of house and home. And if you, if you haven't practiced contentment, then you'll see that with a kind of resentfulness. Whereas actually, what a wonderful blessing. You see? So I think that's part of the contentment issue. The heart of it is you, you cannot gain contentment by adding more money. Because like with the housing price scale, wherever you are, there's a top end that you wish you could go beyond. You, contentment has to be an attitude with, with which we receive what God has given us. Any more comments or questions on that? Or should we, I want to look at the next little cameo as well. Let's look at um, verse 13 down to 17 then. So there's a little change, a disjunction somewhat in the, in the text. A change of scene, we might say. Here's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Here goes. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take away nothing. Where's that alluding to? Job. Job, very good. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Verse 16, this is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, because it's a, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's a wonderful thing to be able to do. But this is a tragedy. 
Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Why would he eat in darkness? Doesn't want anybody else to see. But he's lost all his yummy food. Yeah, very good. Doesn't have oil for a lamp. All his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. So what's happened to his money then? What's, what's this? this guy had loads of money. Riches in verse 13. So what happened? Lost them in a bad venture. Remember this is Solomon, author of Proverbs. Um, all the stuff about being careful who you lend money to um, and various other things you should bear in mind when embarking on business ventures. Probably, sorry. Um, It's interesting, he doesn't talk about it as a personal experience, does he? Notice in verse 13, this is an evil that I've seen. Yeah, out there. So it doesn't seem that Solomon ever experienced this, which kind of fits with our um, picture of his life, doesn't it? Yeah, Samuel. In in regards to that, it seems like a simple observation about it happening to someone else. Mm. Yeah. But it's not just, well, you know, a business venture, I took out a loan. Most of it, you know, couldn't pay it back. So now I've got debts, I've got to pay. There's something else worse, isn't there, at the end of verse 14? You're right, your hand gone up. Something else you want to talk about? Okay, thanks. Okay, verse fourteen. What's the real tragedy here? He's lost everything. Yeah, it's father of a son. Oh dear. So this this wasn't just I lost pocket money, lost discretionary income. One son. Contrast, um, chapter six, verse three. If a man fathers a hundred children. Okay, so that's a different scenario. I don't know what's going on there, Solomon. Remember, because a thousand wives and concubines. But here, he's got one son. And he's made some money. Oh. But now he has nothing, because he's lost it. And so now he's... You said, verse 15, Samuel, the quote from Job, chapter 1. The the blessed, righteous man who's lost everything. And it doesn't look like there's a happy ending here. Remember Job, the the narrative goes on a long time, and after 30-odd chapters of arguments with his friends, quote-unquote, you get to the end and Job is restored in many ways, but not here. So that's awkward. What are you going to do to avoid that? That was a trick question, by the way. Why is that a trick question? Kind of a trick question. Well, you should plan. You can't plan to avoid all catastrophe, but you should plan as well as you can. Right. You can't plan to avoid all catastrophe, because life is hevel, remember? I know, I'll get that app on my smartphone with a little fan attached to, to shepherd the wind, remember? And you all saw that I was joking last week. When I, I used that illustration once before in 2013, and nobody 
realised I was joking until like right to the end of it. So you obviously know me better. Um, so, so we've got this tricky situation. We can't shepherd the wind. Can't corral the hevel. But at the same time, Solomon is telling us this story. He, I've, I've seen somebody, this happened to them. The implication is don't let it happen to you. Yeah, Aaron, and then Uri, you had a question. You can't always tell if a venture is bad till the end of it. Yep. There is a ton of stuff in the book of Proverbs actually about the, 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 the clues about what's going to be a bad idea financially. And I suspect that most of us have made, I'm not talking about investments that were reasonable investments that lost money. Everyone's lost money this year. S&P's down 20 something percent. I'm talking about investments that were just a stupid idea. Whether it's a business investment or some other kind of investment or you lent money to somebody thinking, well, he'll pay it back, he's a friend. <laughs> yeah. um, so we probably should, um, at some point, try and work through that material and try and sort out what we can about those financial things. Uriah, you wanted to throw something in. Right. That was it, now it lost everything. So it seems like that kind of mentality goes against this to not ever put yourself in a position yes. where you're throwing everything you have, the mortgage, you know, the cars, borrowing money from the bank, to mm-hmm. make this one thing work out. Because if it works out, it'll be great. If yes. it doesn't work out, everything is gone. Yeah, the all eggs in one basket um, approach to financial planning is is not a smart idea. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's the problem. And you, you hear the stories of... And this is the... This drives me absolutely nuts. Those, those stupid websites that, and the adverts that appear all over the place for just one tip. I'm going to share with you my, my, my four-minute... Oh, if I crying out loud... Yeah. He's getting rich because he's getting revenue from you watching the video. Please. Anyway, and you spend $10 and buy his special pack of whatever. Okay. Um, but we, we should talk about this um, probably because you guys and loads of others at All Saints who are either older teenagers or young adults and you've got a whole bunch of different business opportunities and career opportunities and vocational opportunities before you and, and sinking the mortgage into one big crazy idea that might just work. Yeah, Aaron. Kind of going off what you're right with saying, I think it seems to me as we're going through this stuff and talking about acquiring wealth and your experience of that, it seems like a biblical idea of acquiring wealth to be kind of a long process. Right, exactly. And constant 
spoil kind of what you're just saying. Yes. That's kind of yes. how, in my mind at least, it seems like that's how God works as well. Kind of long-term. Precisely. You know, like years and years and years after years, things not working out, but he's just continually improving. But we're being, we're trying to be faithful and we've been planning out. So that seems like it would apply to the way we should be trying to apply our love. Well. I think that's extremely wise, Aaron. Yeah. The, there's a long-term steady paradigm for everything in the Bible. Remember when I talked about post-millennialism, the growth of the kingdom over time is long-term steady with ups and downs. Like, just like a set of sensible, moderately conservative, diversified investments and vocational opportunities. Not all the eggs in one basket. I, for what it's worth, and I mentioned this now, and we will talk about it another time, I think it is important. Um, David Barnson is a, a Christian, son of Greg Barnson. Hands up if you've heard of Greg Barnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you recovering theonomists, I, myself included. Um, Greg Barnson's outstanding theologian from late 20th century. Uh, his son, David, is a, a godly Christian man and an investment advisor. And he's written and, and blogs multiple times a week and podcasts about his investment philosophy. And it's very interesting. He, he even makes fairly, fairly explicit connections at points between his Christian faith and the practicalities, the real nuts and bolts of his investment philosophy. And I don't really understand a great deal about it. I've read a couple of his books and I listen to him because I, I think it's a, an education to do so. But it is that kind of long-term... So he get, he'll, I remember one interview he had when somebody said, so um, when's the recession uh, going to end? And he said, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. And anybody who tells you they do is a charlatan. It's like, well, thank you for speaking truth. <laughs> um, so, but I can tell you, and then he went off and said some things that can be said um, because they rest on actual observable data that can be measured. So um, I like the guy, and I think it's... We really should probably do a, a much more thorough job of connecting our Christian faith to life-changing practicalities, like how you train for a job and where you invest your money. So thank you. I'm going to... I feel prompted again to do some work on that. Thanks. Um, Fraser, yeah. But what does it mean that riches were kept by their owners yeah, that's a fascinating phrase. Do you have any thoughts? Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost. Your wife thinks she knows, and Uriah's waving. Are you just stretching your shoulder out, brother? You got it. Um, well, go ahead. What do you think? Well, uh, there seems to be a practical Christian that'll hoard their wealth. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. That might be right. There's several character flaws in a person that hoards their wealth and they want to gain more, but they're not willing to give out more. Yes. I think there might, may well be something in that, that, that what Solomon has in mind is a set of character traits which incline people to hoard and then incline them to bet everything on one big thing. Yeah, maybe that's right. I, I wonder also if it's as simple as... Well, w- no. If one aspect of it is 
that God actually favours in his kind providence those who are generous and those who do reflect in their business habits the long-term steady character of mature faithful Christian living. So somebody who is generous and somebody who isn't trying to make 150% a year is just, just trying to plan responsibly the Lord will bless. But the one who buries all the gold in a box under his bed and then leaves it there waiting for the catastrophe to happen so that he's the only the only cockroach left alive after the nuclear holocaust you know it's like that's just really foolish and actually God will act in judgment against that kind of foolishness those those riches will be lost the Lord gave and the Lord can take away remember Job chapter one which is what this is quoting from in verse 15 so I think just a simple God's providence follows patterns, even though it's not predictable, is, is worth remembering. I think that, that might be what's going on. But you, it's like that, kind of hard, that hard distinction between saving and hoarding. What's the difference between saving and hoarding? It's hard to tell, right? But there are motivational factors, aren't there, that, that distinguish the two. Yeah, Mrs. Bennett. Well, for the for a believer, we have to be tithing. So if you don't tithe, then the Lord right. has every motivation to make it spend. Yeah, tithing. That's another thing that needs to go into this whole discussion about money. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll level with you. I say the same thing to everybody. Um, uh, when I need to talk with them about significant financial hardship, if they're experiencing it, I, I'll say... Um, you don't need to tell me. I don't want to know what you earn. Um, but I need to say, if you're not tithing, expect the Lord to act in judgment against you. Don't believe me? Read Haggai and Malachi. That's the whole problem of the, the people in those two books. And um, that's, that's, just, that's his providence in operation again. Yeah. If the Lord will take the tithe, either voluntarily or in the form of sending locusts to consume it. For him. So. so, well, we did reasonably well, didn't we? We've got two or three minutes left. Um, now, now, look, what, what we've seen, you've seen the big shape of this text. And we've looked at some cameos in a little detail. You can see how other elements in the text fit into the picture. So, just as there's an evil in verse 13, there's an evil in chapter 6, verse 1. And a man was given all this wealth, but God does not give him power to enjoy them. And that is a fascinating phrase, and that, that takes us to the heart of this passage. I wanted to spend a minute or two on this, verses 18 to 20. Notice the repeated idea of God giving not just wealth, but the capacity to enjoy it. And those things seem independent. And you could be content. I mean, I gave some figures earlier, didn't I? I, I, I guess it would be really hard to raise a family on 20,000. I guess you could do it fairly straightforwardly on 80 if it wasn't a family that was too big. Um, I'm trying to give concrete figures. But it would be possible to be frugal and hardworking on a relatively modest income and to have the power to enjoy it. 
likewise, it would be possible to have a much larger income and not have the power to enjoy it. And so we should pray for both. Let's not over-spiritualize away anything that's to do with money. When the Bible tells us that we should be concerned for these things. So look, verse 18, and we'll just finish with this. What I've seen to be good. Oh, phew, finally. (laughs) Because remember, all the stuff about creation and fall. The fall introduces evil into the world and death into the world. But good is the thing that's there in Genesis 1. So what have you seen to be good, Solomon? This is a reversal of the catastrophe of the fall. Good and fitting is eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's the rest of a labourer, isn't it? With which one toils under the sun the few days of the life that God has given him. That's his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Accept his lot. Yeah, it's contentment. Um, And the capacity to enjoy what God has given This is a gift of God, gift of God, God has given. You see, emphasis on God's gift, both of the wealth and the capacity to enjoy it. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That feels to me always like a slightly cynical, but Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, you can understand what he's getting at in the light of Ecclesiastes, can't you? Um, he, he won't remember all the hevel because God keeps him happy all the days of his short life. That, that, but that's exactly what Kohelet would say, isn't it? It's, it's not bitter, I don't think, in verse 20. It is just the gritty realism. You know, life is short. A few decades. Um, 70, by reason of strength, 80. And it's hevel. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you worked hard and you had enough to survive and look after your family and to and God gave you the power to enjoy it so you didn't really worry too much about the hevel and then you died and that'd be fine that's great that's actually a a, a good aspiration so the realities of the bible's teaching about wealth are much more gritty and textured than the silly pietism that many of us have have heard and read and even taught in the past. Um, and I want to encourage you, just especially those younger ones, younger folks among us, don't let anybody over-spiritualize away the realities of your obligation to do the best you can to provide for yourselves and for your family and for others. And don't ever think that, oh, I'm rich now, great, I can be... No, no, no. We've got to be content all the way along. Content all the way through, right from the beginning. Get your first paycheck, two-thirds of it goes on rent. Okay? Lord, please give me power to enjoy what you've given me. It's a great thing to pray. And then be generous, don't hoard it. Invite somebody else around to share a a pot of noodles with, with you. Great. And give generously and then wait long term all right we're done three minutes past quarter past obviously i don't know why that happens let me lead us in prayer and then we'll head merciful father we are grateful to you for the sober 
and sobering realities of your word. And we ask that you'd drive far from us the foolishness that naively simplifies and oversimplifies complex matters. We pray, Father, for those of us, those in our midst here at All Saints and those known to us who are experiencing financial hardship. We know that just the realities of life sometimes face us with financial loss. We ask, Father, that you provide for them opportunities for them to work and so to provide for themselves. In your kind providence, please grant uh, opportunities for uh, growth of businesses and stability of income, even in what feel right now like uncertain economic times. We pray that you'd give to all of us the capacity to enjoy that which you've given us, recognising that you have given us much. And we pray that uh, you teach generosity to us all so that we wouldn't be like those who uh, lose that which you've given us in a bad venture because of our hard-heartedness and hoarding. And so all these complexities we uh, bring to you and ask that you'd shape into biblical wisdom in our minds and hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great evening, everybody. God bless. See you soon. Thank you.